let us uh, pray, and then we'll dig into 1 Peter 3 again. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that uh, your word is always rich. It's always profitable, that it contains all that we need for, for this life, to, to walk in godliness, to, to live holy lives. And Father, I pray that the text today would, would impact us. I pray that if our lives are not in line with this, that you would convict us. I pray that if it, our lives are, that you'd encourage us to, to step up more and more. And Lord, may we, in all of this, glorify you in the way that we live our lives. Amen. Amen. Okay. First Peter chapter 3. Husbands and wives, you can all be safely back at church now. No need to avoid anything. Or so you thought this week is actually going to wrap up that section and there'll be some, some more things I think that we can apply um, to the various circumstances we've been looking at in recent weeks. We are in chapter 3 and verse 8. And in this section, we are going to see a summary of what has been said previously in the, in the section leading up to, to this. And it's kind of very well-timed um, through no planning on my part at all, in that the wrapping up of this whole section comes now before we take a break uh, from First Peter for Christmas. When we come back, though, first Sunday in January, we are going to be in verse uh, 13 and following. And it is, I think, probably one of my most favorite, if not the most favorite part of First Peter. It's really what he's been building up to, and it's incredibly important, so I'd encourage you to be here for that. And then we'll press on, and there's all sorts of goodies, <clears throat> Christ preaching to spirits in prison and stuff coming up in the new year. So we've got that to come. But this week, as we look now at verse 8, he starts off and he says, finally, all of you. The finally here is clearly not the end of the book. He's still got two and a half chapters to go. The finally is to this section that we've been doing. He's been dealing, as you recall, with the issue of subjection in suffering. It is necessary for us to submit to those to whom we must submit, even when the people to whom we're submitting are treating us badly, even when we're in circumstances of suffering. He dealt with uh, submission to, to government, broadly speaking, in the middle of chapter 2. Servants and masters was there just following. And then right in the middle of that section, the center of the double-decker sandwich, was the servanthood of Christ. That Christ, in going to the cross, was our example of how we should be. That as he went to the cross, he did not use the suffering that he was enduring to be a reason for sin. There was no deceit. There was no, um, uh, let me get this right as I read from it. There was no deceit, no reviling, and no threatening. And he suffered, and uh, in doing so, he entrusted himself continually to God the Father. That all that happened, he knew that God's will was being done, and he trusted him. And that's the model for us. And then Peter went on and he dealt with wives. 
who must submit even when their husbands are not living according to the word. And then in verse 7, last week, likewise husbands, husbands have to be uh, submissive to the will of God and to do what is right even in the midst of suffering. And so the finally all of you is all of you. Husbands, wives, those at workplaces, those under government authority. Whatever your circumstances of life, there's two things that are going to be uh, unavoidable for you. Firstly, you are going to have to submit. You're going to have to submit to someone in some place at some time. And that person may well treat you badly. But more so, you are going to have to submit to Scripture. And you're going to have to submit to God's will. And there will be times when that is painful to do. There's times when you're just thinking, why God? There's going to be times when everything within your heart is going to say, I don't want to do this. And everything in your mind is going to be hardwired to find an excuse not to do it. But nonetheless, we must walk as we've been commanded to walk, we must follow the example of Christ in the midst of suffering. And this is the summary of that whole point. And he's saying, all of you. These specifics I've dealt with, but finally, as we wrap it up, all of you, I want you to be this way. Now, sometimes these lists, you're thinking, what, what's all the specifics here? What's going on? This, for me, as a preacher, is, a, is an easy one. It's a good one. He's given us here five separate terms. Uh, you have here in the English the, the have, have unity of mind. The have isn't there in the original. He literally says, finally, every one of you, this, 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 this. And he just lists five things there. Boom, 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 boom. There for us to see. They're in what we call a chiastic structure. So there are pa pairs, parallels. There is the first one and the last one that go together. There is the next one in and the one from the back that go together. And then right in the middle, we have the center of the sandwich, which is our main focus. So as I look at these five terms, I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to start at the edge. Do the first and the last as a pair, then come in, do the next two as a pair, and then we're going to look at the center of the sandwich, which sums them all up. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. So let's do first and last. All of you have unity of mind. That's your first one. And then if you look at the last one, a humble mind. In your English text, if you have the same version as me, you have the repetition of mind. Literally, it's actually an adjective and it's more to do with thinking. It's, it's uh, literally like thinking or same thinking. And then at the end, humble thinking. Every one of us, whatever our circumstances in life, we need to think the same way and we need to be humble in our thinking. Now... Those of you who were here for Philippians, I hope you're going to be having little bells ringing here that just as we see in Scripture, the writers quoting or alluding to the Old Testament and people would say, aha, I know what he's referring to. Hopefully some of you hear the expression same mind and you're like, that rings a bell. Where have I heard that before? And if you were here for Philippians, we dealt with that expression constantly. In the book of Philippians, uh, the idea of having a same mind was used multiple times in the same book. I think about seven times. 
having uh, thinking this way, thinking that way, being of this thought, that thought. And the focus on the way that we were to think is that we were to have Philippians 2, the same mind as Christ. What was the mind that Christ had? The mind that Christ had was a humble mind. He considered others to be more important than himself and was prepared to put aside his glory and to come and humble himself, become a man, go to the cross. Why? Context of 1 Peter. He's entrusted himself to the Father, knowing that the Father is going to exalt him, literally super, hyper, ultra exalt him, following his humiliation. There is no way in my mind that Peter, as he wrote this, was not thinking of Philippians 2. Not a chance. We know that Peter was heavily influenced by Paul's writings because he references Paul's writings specifically in 2 Peter, which we'll see in the early months of next year. We know that when copies were made, it wasn't like today where you print off the thousands of copies at once. They had to be copied by hand which made them, made them very precious, very rare, and meant that you just couldn't very easily get one. So who got them first? I imagine the apostles might have been high up on the list, don't you? I think it would have been necessary that those who were dedicated to the word of God and prayer, that those whose ministry is to train up others who are going to minister once the apostles are gone, that those who had this specific role in the foundation of the church, that they're going to have easy, early access to writings of other apostles. And so I think that Peter here very much had Philippians 2 in his mind. So when you in scripture see the expression, have the same mind, have unity of mind, think the same way, it is not saying that you should all have exactly the same theology. We're always going to have disagreements on things. There are those who love the Lord who disagree with this church on some of the stances that we take on certain doctrines. And there are some of you here today who we could have a, we could have a good knock around theologically arguing from Scripture on minor issues that we disagree on. The unity of mind has been abused in churches where churches have said, you have got to think exactly what I think. And that's not how we do things here. We try and teach the text, show you what I think it says, and so that you would come to an agreement, not on the basis of me saying so, but on the basis of the text saying so. I do not want pastor parrots. You know what pastor parrots are, aren't you? don't you? Pastor parrots are the people who say, well, what does this text say? And then somebody says, well, actually, I think it means something different than what you say. And their response is, oh, pastor says, pastor says. Please, do not be pastor parrots. What I say is utterly irrelevant. More than you could imagine. Just ask my wife. Most of the time, I'm not worth listening to. The only basis of listening to me is, is if, if what I am teaching is what the text in front of you is teaching. So when you come, you should be here with open Bibles. They're in front of you if you haven't brought one. And you look at the text and you see what I'm saying and you draw your own conclusions. And if you think he's gone completely off here, then talk to me afterwards. Correct me maybe if need be. I am not and I will never be. And I swore from a young age I would never be one of these unapproachable pastors who you criticize or you say you disagree and you're kind of ousted the next Sunday. 
They exist, they're more common than not, but they will not be here, ever, when I'm here anyway. It's not going to happen. And so we need to not be pastor parrots, we need to be people who think for ourselves. So the way in which we have godly minds is not by all forcing us into this box of complete agreement on every minor doctrine. The way in which the Bible means we have the same mind is that there is one specific thing that we are going to be in complete and total and utter agreement on, and that is this, that we are prepared to consider others more important than ourselves and to humble ourselves, trusting God the Father to give us due reward and due glory at due time. That we will go through suffering. We will go through hell on earth if we have to. We will endure whatever God by his will puts us through. And we will trust him. And we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And we will love and bless and treat others well in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through. And if you're not up for that, then this is not the church for you. That's what we're going to do. And that's why he begins with, you've got to have the same mind. And at the end, he says, and your minds have to be humble. And that is the, the commonality. With the first and fifth thing on the list, he's essentially saying the same thing. Have the mind of Christ. And what is the mind of Christ? He's just given us that wonderful example. Christ going to the cross, not reviling, not threatening, no deceit, no sin, just choosing to love in the midst of suffering. That's how all of us, husbands, wives, everyone in all situations, that is how we should be. Now, secondly, go in one step. Sympathy. And then if you go to the one in from the back, a tender heart. These are fascinating words. Let me, let me unpack them for you. All of these words, by the way, are... are um, compound words, these, these four that, that we're dealing with first. They're, they're made up of two parts, like thinking, humble thinking. And here we have the word sympathy that literally means suffer with. Suffer with. The, the other word, tender-hearted, is a word that's only other, the only other place it's found in the Bible. And by the way, these four words, there are, three of them are only found in one place in the Bible here. The tender-hearted is found only in one other place, and that is in Ephesians 4, where, and I've written a blog on this on the website a while back, where the, I understood the word tender-hearted to be speaking of empathy. Paul speaking about us being tender-hearted, empathetic to each other. And literally, the word tender-hearted means good guts. I love that. Good guts. You see, in our society today, we think with our minds and we feel with our hearts. In the Bible, that's not the case. In the Bible, you think with your mind and you feel with your inner being, your guts. And sometimes that, that, that kind of way of approaching it has continued on to this day in that we talk about a gut feeling or, you know, oh, you know, that was terrible news. It was a sucker punch to the gut or something like that. There, there are certain idioms that kind of keep that way of thinking. And biblically, the heart is the combination of those things. The heart is where the gut and the head literally meet. It's the two combined, thinking and feeling. 
But here it's talking about feeling. And it's talking about good feelings. Good gut, good feelings. All right? And what it's meaning in context is this. Is that the way that you feel towards other people, towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, are feelings of goodness. Positive feelings. Do you remember going back to Philippians? Philippians talks about, you know, this same mind, have the same mind as Christ, have the same mind as each other, thinking like Christ, being humble like Christ. And he, he builds that up in chapter 2. And in chapter 4 of Philippians, we find out why. There's two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. And Euodia and Syntyche are squabbling. And their squabbling and their, and their fighting is so significant, it's affecting the whole church. And they're told, in most translations, to agree with one another. I, I don't like that expression. It literally says, to think the same way. That doesn't mean that they agree. I mean, how do you say to two people who are fighting, just agree with each other? Euodia says, yep, you heard, us, you heard that, Syntyche? You've got to agree with me. Syntyche, no, no, you, you heard it. You've got to agree with me. We're back to square one. What he's saying when he says you are to think the same way is exactly what he referred to in chapter 2. You're to think the same way insofar as Euodia, Syntyche is more important than you. Syntyche, Euodia is more important than you. Let's agree on that. That you have to witness Christ. You have to be like Christ in the way that you deal with each other. And then, as he said that, which I believe is the whole conclusion and point of the book of Philippians... He then, as having said that, says a few very well-known verses. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say again, rejoice. The context for that wonderful verse, which someone told me this week was the most quoted verse of the Bible on social media in 2019. How about that? Rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. What's the context of that? The context of that is Euodia Syntyche is someone that you're fighting with, that is hurt you, that you're upset with. But you're going to rejoice in the Lord. You're going to humble yourself, have the mind of Christ, and rejoice even in the midst of that conflict. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, do not be anxious when you are being treated badly, when you're in conflict, but rather go to God, not to the person you're in conflict with. That's what we've been seeing contextually, what, the last four, five weeks? You can't change the other person. Only God can go to God, not to the other person. Verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That very well-known verse is about when there is suffering, when there is conflict, trusting God to resolve things, doing what's right in the midst of that conflict, and there will be peace because you are trusting God. Now, what's my point in all of that? My point is this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Listen, that is not a verse to be quoted to try and get your teenager to adjust their TV viewing habits. It is a verse contextually that follows a conflict between two people who needed to be reminded to have humble minds like Christ. 
Hey, Euodia, what do you think of Syntyche? She sucks. She did this to me, she did that, she does this, she's like that, and she's always doing this. What's Paul's message to her? Have the mind of Christ, but also, finally, in the list of things, rejoicing, trusting God, think about what's true. No deceit. Think about what is honorable, what's just, what's pure. Think about what is lovely, what's commendable, what is excellent. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's how you think about Syntyche, Euodia. And that is what's being expressed here in the word tender-hearted. Good feelings. Thinking well of someone. Listen, we've just done husband and wife passages, right? If you're in a point of conflict and you want to say to that person, you're like this, how about finding something positive to say? It doesn't mean that they're not like what you were going to say. Do you remember the example I've been using for the last two, three, four weeks? There's Christ on the cross, and he did not revile. He said nothing negative. There is Jesus, and he could have said, you're all going to be damned for this terrible sin. Oh, feel great about yourselves. You're in the middle of the worst sin in human history. And you're going to be judged for all eternity for this. And nothing would have been untrue. But he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he saw one moment of goodness, the thief on the cross who had spoken against him there at the very end, says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Everything that came from his lips was positive. These two words here combined, sympathy and tender-hearted, are combining together the two elements of what we refer to by the English word empathy. It means having good feelings for a person and thus suffering alongside of them, feeling their pain, crying tears for their loss. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about doing that in the midst of suffering and conflict. You know? It's so easy to say something positive about someone when they've done something nice. Someone does something nice for you, Christmas time gives you the gift you wanted, and you're like, oh, good old aunt so-and-so. She's, she always gets the right gifts. Oh, I've always loved her. She's a great aunt. You know? It's easy in that situation. But you know what's hard? is when you're put down, it's when you're hurt, it's when you're disregarded, it's when you're treated badly. It's when the, the, the wives are doing none of the things that Peter tells them to do. It's when the husbands are being harsh and not dwelling and understanding as they're supposed to do. It's when the, the boss at work is, is being ungrateful and unappreciative and putting pressures on. It's when you are being treated badly by government or whomever else or just the circumstances of life are such that you are in a situation where you have nothing positive to say. At that point, you are the problem. 
there's always something positive to say. I don't care how badly somebody treats you. They are made in the image of God. I don't care how bad circumstances are. God is still sovereign and he is still good. There is always something good for us to see. Always something good for us to be encouraged by, to focus on. Can you imagine a church like this if every time somebody hurt you or offended you, you thought of something positive to say to them? Can you imagine what that would do to a church, to a marriage, to extended family over Christmas? If every time that visiting relative who always belittles you, puts you down, that you respond by saying something really nice about them? Or how about when they do it for the 50th time, you think, man, I don't know this relative that well. What hurt them so badly that this is their instinctive way of treating people? I don't, resp- I don't treat people that way. They must have been hurt so much more than I've been hurt. Man, that sucks. How hard it must have been for them. Whatever it was, it's affected their lives so much. Good feelings suffer with. Sympathy tender-hearted. And when we do these things, we're doing the middle of a sandwich. And what is that middle? Brotherly love. I don't even have to say much about brotherly love, do I? Because he's covered it with all the words around. Suffice to say that the context here is this is how you are going to treat each other. Because the brotherly love always refers to Christian love, to how we treat one another. We, as church, um, in this church, we're family. That's who we are. We've got to make an effort to treat each other better than just acquaintances. We've got to go out on a limb. We've got to be there for those who suffer. We've got to go the extra mile. We've got to, we've got to look at each other in the way that God says we should rather than what is convenient. You know, every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, it's probably at your meal someone you don't particularly want to be there, but why are they there? Because they're family. You haven't got to like everybody at this church, but you do have to love them. That's what brotherly love is. I hope and pray, and I tell you, boy, is it a challenge reading this and studying this this week. But my prayer is that I would be able to have the mind of Christ to think less of myself and more highly of others, to be more tender-hearted, to think positively and kindly of people who treat me badly, and to suffer alongside those who treat me badly. Every person who sins against you is a broken, hurting person. Suffer with them, Treat them kindly, love one another, every one of us. I pray that we would. I'm convicted and I hope you are too. And then verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And so 
Verse 8 is the summary statement of how we should live and how we should treat each other, particularly within the body. But clearly verse 9 has broader implications for outside. We don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, we bless. We've already discussed that with the reference to good feelings, tender-hearted. But we are going to be the people who, when we are hurt, we are going to respond to that hurt with a blessing. We are going to think of things that we can do to lift up, to encourage, and to strengthen that broken, hurting person who is trapped in their sin. It's so easy for us to have someone sin against us, someone treat us badly, and to say, brilliant, the enemy. We've, we've now, we've now, um, we've now uh, boxed them, we've labeled them, we've, we've said, this is the bad person. That is such an ungodly thing to do. And I, I think, maybe it's just me, but I think we do it instinctively, all of us. That, you know, there's somebody that you've never met in your life before. And they bump you and they're a little bit rude and they don't apologize or they cut you up in traffic and you're like, ah! And that person, even just in your mind, if you don't say anything, that person is now the bad guy. They're the bad person. Why? Because they've impacted your life negatively. Do you know, know what it feels like to be in a rush? Do you, know, know what it, do you know what it feels like to be having a really bad day where maybe you'd normally say please, your pleases and thank yous, but you're just holding it together? You have no idea what that other person is going through. And maybe they are just a nasty person. But how did that come about? What happened? Who are they? You see, the, the problem with making someone the bad guy is twofold. Or the bad girl, obviously. Firstly, it basically reneges us of all responsibility to love that person. That they're now them, you know, bad people. Bad, and, and we know about bad, bad guys, don't we? The, the bad, the, the enemy. Because we, we talk about the enemy in Scripture. We put on our spiritual warfare to protect ourselves against the enemy. And you don't go and pray for the enemy because the enemy is the one trying to hurt you. And, and, and so if we can take people and we can put them into that enemy category, into that bad person category, we have now reneged ourselves of all responsibility to love, to bless, to cherish, to treat well to be kind, to be compassionate, to think more highly of them than of us, to, to come alongside them and to suffer with them. We've just reneged ourselves of all that responsibility. And secondly, the second thing we've done by making somebody the bad guy or the bad person, the enemy, the second thing we've done is we put ourselves outside of that category. Just your occasional reminder that we all need to have. You are a dirty, rotten sinner. Just letting you know, just in case you've forgotten. And every single one of us, myself included, it is our instinctive nature. It is hardwired into our bodies. It is in every cell of our DNA. It is there. We are sinners. And we instinctively sin. And we sin against people around us. And half the time we don't even know that we're doing it. And half the time we do know that we're doing it. We don't care that we're doing it. 
We are horrible sinners. And so when we suffer at the hands of someone and we say, oh, they've done this, they're a bad person, then what it does is it makes us the good person, which we're not. This sermon is missing content due to technical difficulties. Take that evil that is done to us and we are going to repay that evil with blessing. We're going to take that reviling, that repetition of that word that was used to get of, of Christ not reviling, that negativity, that saying things negatively, putting people down. We're going to, when that's done to us, we're not going to do that back. I mean, you know, it seems like, gosh, we've, we've just had an election back home in England. And I mean, so social media is kind of a little bit with half of my friends like it was here a few Novembers ago, you know? And it's just like, well, you're a stinking nincompoop. Well, you're just a, a horrible, sucky little what's-it, you know? And it's just all, you know, a little bit stronger than that. But I need to watch Elf again to get my, my, my polite insults ready. But... It's this sense in which, you know, someone says something nasty to you and so you just want to be nasty back. Can we be the people to break that? Can we be the people in our homes, in our church, in our community, in our places of work to put an end to that? To set an example? To bless those who would speak nastily of us? Oh, Someone at work says, you always leave that door open. You, you always forget to do that. And you're like, deep breath, God, give me strength. Yeah, you know, I did it again, I'm sorry. Of course, you're not going to agree that you always do, because you don't always do it. But yeah, no, I left it open, I'm sorry. I noticed that you never do that. I appreciate that you don't. And then just walk away. We've got to be different. Why? Because when we come back in the first week of January, you're going to see Peter saying that people need to come to us and say, why are you different? Why do you not respond to suffering the way that we respond to suffering? Why do you not re respond to being sinned the way that we respond to being sinned against? Why are you different? Let me tell you about the hope that I have. You see, when he says in chapter 3 and verse 15, be ready to, ask any, uh, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and respect. He's not talking about being schooled in apologetics, though that's not a bad thing. He's saying being ready when people come to you because they see the difference in you. And it is this kind of stuff in verse 9 not repaying evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but blessing other people. That's the thing that makes us stick out. For, here's your reason, to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now listen, I know some struggle with this because at first glance it might appear to be like a works-based kind of salvation thing. That's not what's going on here. But I do think... That here in verse 9, when he says, to this you were called, I think in the context of 1 Peter, the this is the suffering. The this is more specifically the blessing in response to suffering. The treating well in the res response to being treated badly. This is what you've been called to. You have been called to be Christians. God didn't simply say, hey, 
I've got a free ticket to heaven here. Who shall I give it to? This person. There you are, free ticket to heaven. Nothing else to worry about. But rather, that when God chose us before the foundation of the world, when he called us and drew us to himself, he did have a, a way of doing it, Ephesians 2.8, that it was by faith and not by works that no one should boast. But he had a purpose in doing it. And he saved us for works that he prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, that we should walk in them. And so, for us... There is a calling. And though the specifics of our callings are different, what we've been called to, what we've been gifted to are different, there are commonalities as well. And every one of us has been called to be holy as God is holy. To be distinct as God is distinct. And everything that we are seeing in these chapters is how we become holy. How we become distinct. It's this kind of behavior. It is this sympathy, this tenderheartedness, this thinking like Christ with humility, loving one another, not repaying evil for evil, blessing those who persecute us. That's what we've been called to, that we might obtain a blessing. Now, you see, that blessing is why people struggle with my interpretation here. They say, what, so we have, to, we have to live this way and then God blesses us? Doesn't God bless us and so we live? Isn't that how it is? And Peter, I think, is saying two things here. Firstly, if we're called, if we're saved, so if we're called, we're going to be saved. And if we're saved, we're going to be changed. If a person's life does not change one little bit and they say, but I believe in Jesus, they will be the people who on that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that? And he'll say, I never knew you. I do not believe in salvation by works in any way, shape or form. But if we don't have any transformation in our life, how can we go around saying that the Holy Spirit indwells us? That's ridiculous. There has to be a balance there. And so I think that those who are called are called to live away and then to receive the blessing. That is the package of God. God doesn't just simply say, hey, I'm going to have this person and bless them with eternal life. What he says is, I'm going to have this person that I have a purpose for their life and a blessing for them at the end. Well, hallelujah, hallelujah that he's chosen us for such a blessing. But that blessing doesn't come in isolation. It's not that we earn that blessing. It's that we live a life as part of the process of the plan that God is working out in us. But I think also there is a blessing here that goes beyond that. And we'll see that a little more clearly in the following verses. Now, I'm going to wrap up relatively quickly with these last verses. He's quoting to us here from uh, Psalm 34. So you know what we're going to do? Let's turn there nice and quickly to Psalm 34 and see the passage that he's quoting to us from. I do want to go a little quicker here uh, to wrap up, but it is a great, I do like Psalm 34. It's a good psalm, by the way. The, um, it is a reminder of the goodness of God. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His mouth shall continue to be, uh, his praise shall continue to be in my mouth. 
My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. This is a psalm of blessing and praise to God and he should always be praised and we should be humble below him. Some of the themes we've seen in First Peter. I sought Yahweh and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 34 is going to become relevant again next week. Okay? But I want to draw your attention. This is why you have to come every week, folks. The continuity, right? Those of you who are going to be here on the first Sunday of January, this is going to give you a little bit more. Look at this. Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. And the references to Yahweh in almost every verse... There's one, two, three in the first three verses, there in verse four, there in verse six, and then look at verse seven. The angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh is the pre incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so we have all these references to God, and then we have a reference to Jesus as God in verse seven. Interesting that Peter is in Psalm 34 and seeing that, bearing in mind what we're going to see next time we're in First Peter in the first Sunday in January. But I'll leave that little, that little tidbit with you. Okay? Now, verse 8 and 9, well, verse 8 you should recognize because verse 8 he quoted earlier back in chapter 2 and verse 3 uh, in First Peter. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In other words, what is this psalm saying? It's saying that God is good. He's worthy to be praised. We need to humble ourselves and do things his way. And when we do things his way, he looks after us. He protects us. He, he, uh, he rewards us. He blesses us. And the summary of all that in verse 8 is, look, try See that God can be trusted. Trust your life to him and see how good it is to trust your life to him. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. Everything that is good for you, you have as you follow Christ. God Christ is our sufficiency. And so we fear him and we trust him. Now we come to verse 11. And this is where we come to the section that Peter is quoting. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, fear of Yahweh. This is the whole section. He said to the wives, don't fear your husbands, but fear God. You should be concerned about God's word and what God says to do. We all need to be doing what God says, even when it's hard, because we fear God. How do we do that? Look at verse 12. What man is there who desires to live, uh, desires life rather, and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. I want you to notice two changes in what Peter does when he quotes this. Firstly, 
verse 12 here in Psalm 34 is a question. Peter takes it from being a question to a statement because he's trying to show you how this passage applies. He's applying the text. And secondly, he cuts it off halfway through verse 17. Uh, verse 18, rather. Uh, no, verse 17. Uh, no, verse 16. Sorry, couldn't see it. Verse 16. Face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Psalm 34 is written in an old covenant context. If you do what is good, God blesses you. If you don't do what's good, God punishes you. That's the context. Now, what Peter is doing is he's taking that Old Testament covenant context and he's applying it to new covenant people. Let's see how he does that. Let's go back to 1 Peter. Now we've got our context. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. In other words, and by the way, in Hebrew, is a lot of parallelism. Life and good days is, is uh, pretty much the same thing. Basically, do you want to be blessed? Anyone want to be blessed? I mean, you're thinking, hold on a second, are we going to go down the Joel Osteen route here? Are we going to be talking about your best life now? Do you know what? Maybe I will. This is how you're going to have your best life now. You see, there's no problem with having, not your best ever, because the life to come is going to be better, but there's no problem in having a wonderful life right now. The, the problem with Osteen and all the other heretics like him is that they define best life as a life that is comfortable, a life with wealth, a life with health, a life free from trouble. That's not your best life. That's a life where you're never challenged. It's a life when you're never sanctified. It's a, knife, it's a life where you never find out if you're going to become godly enough that you would be holy as God is holy. It's a life where you're never going to find people treating you so badly that you're like, do I trust God enough to bless this person when every ounce of my being wants to insult them back, hurt them back, punish them? Do I trust God enough? Is my faith sufficient that I will leave God to judge them? I will leave God to be the one who will pass justice. And I will simply do in humility what he's called me to do. I will follow the example that he followed. I will have the same mind as Christ, a humble mind. And I will bless those who persecute me. How are you ever going to find that out? If you sail through life with no struggles. Let me be absolutely clear. God loves you far too much to let you have a comfortable life. We've got to get our heads around that. And some of you, I know what you're thinking. He just loves me a bit too much. I don't want to be loved that much. You know? It's the uh, classic fiddler in the roof line from Tevye. You know? We're, I get it. We're God's chosen people. Why can't he choose someone else for a change? It does feel like that sometimes. But we need, I know I'm a scratch record, but maybe one day when I'm gone and buried, the younger people here will remember this. That when everything is rough and everything is tough and everything is difficult and everything is miserable and we're suffering and we just don't have the will to go on, God is still sovereign and he's still good. And because he's sovereign and because he's good, we can trust him. Let's taste and let's see how good it can be.
And so do you want to have blessing in this life? This is what you do. Keep your tongue from evil and keep your lips from speaking deceit. That's what he said about Jesus. No deceit. Speak good, tender-hearted, good feelings. Suffer with. We treat people well. We turn away from evil and we do what is good. We seek peace and we pursue it. There's no giving back what somebody's earned and what they've deserved, but rather we're going to be the peacekeepers. We're going to be the ones who give them what they don't deserve. Why? Because God gave us what we didn't deserve. If we can't be the givers of grace, who the heck are we? We are the recipients of grace. So we must be the givers of grace. And then the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. So when God sees us doing what is good, his eyes are open to us and to our prayers. But contrastly, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, isn't it fascinating that he cuts off that other half of the verse from uh, from Psalm 34. Why? Because it's not true under the new covenant. Listen, if you don't do any of this, if you go out from this place and someone says something negative to you and you say something negative back, if you revile in return from being reviled, if you don't love those who persecute you, if you don't do this, do you know what? That is sinful. But the blood of Jesus Christ covers that sin. So that verse just doesn't apply. You know, we say, well, the verse in Psalms was saying stuff about the land being taken. And, you know, do you know what? If, if a plane falls on your house tomorrow, that doesn't mean that you did something bad the week before. It might just mean that God really, 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 really loves you and wants to do some uber sanctification. But, you know, Stuff happens in life. And there's no way that he is going to quote a verse, which is an old covenant thinking, which basically says, if you do wrong, God's going to take it out on you. I want to, I'd never want to miss an opportunity to say this. God hates your sin, and he wants to make you know, his wrath come down upon that sin as, as richly as that sin deserves. And he did. On the cross, on Christ, at Calvary. There is no wrath, there is no anger, there is no punishment for your sin that God has not already put on Christ. Amen? Do not walk around thinking that God is punishing you. Thinking, yes, of course, if you sin, there are often consequences to your sin. I get that. I understand that. But don't have some sort of supernatural, oh, my life's cursed because I did this when I was a kid or what. You know, one of the worst doctrines from the heretics of the health, wealth and prosperity gospel movement, those people who can't distinguish between old and new covenant remotely, is this concept of, of um, generational curses taken straight from Deuteronomy. Ah, I hate it. I don't know, I, there were some circles we were in in Britain where some people got taught that rubbish and they believed it. And they literally went around thinking that they and their lives were cursed because of something their parents did. And they lived in that reality as they saw it. That's a despicable false doctrine. 
Everything that you or your parents or everybody has ever done, that sin will be upon them or upon Christ. And if you've trusted on Christ, it's upon him and there is no punishment for you. But, and this is where we end, God is against what you do when you don't respond the right way. I, I get it. This person has treated you terribly. Maybe they're not even aware how badly they've treated you. Maybe they've just not only not repented, but they've justified their behavior. <laughs> how could they be so blind? And everything within you wants to just react. Not just retaliate, not just speak badly, not just cause harm, but react. Just, just let your emotions, how, what do you feel like now? I feel like this. Well, just go ahead and do that. Just react with whatever comes naturally. Follow your heart. If you do that, God is against what you're doing. You are going against God's will. What was it he said to husbands at the end in verse 7? He says, with your wives, you're going to honor them. You're going to dwell with them, live with them, stay with them, understand them and honor them because they are recipients of grace. And you're going to do that so that your prayers may not be hindered. Wives, you even when you are treated terribly by a husband who is not living according to the word, you're going to continue to be subject. You're going to continue to behave respectfully. And to have a holy conduct. And you're going to live that way. Hopeful that maybe they might be one with a word. Those two things are being re-said here in this last verse. By saying this. God is simply saying, do you know what? What do you really want in life? And what's your prayer? Fix my spouse. Change my boss. Give me a new job. And that's not really what you want. What you want in life is this. You want to go through life with every blessing that God has for you. You want every ounce of goodness that God has available to give to you in this life now. That's what you want, isn't it? And what is the greatest good that God has for us? It's that we will glorify him. There is nothing better. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more wonderful than us glorifying God. Nothing. And he's telling us how to do it. And if we, what is the point in saying, Lord, I'm praying for this wonderful marriage, or Lord, I'm, I'm praying for, for my life to have all these wonderful blessings, and God says, I've got these most fantastic blessings for you, but you are hindering your own prayers, your own prayers for a life and for good days. You're hindering it. By doing things your way. And why are you doing things your way? Because you don't trust me. Christ trusted me. Christ trusted me. Christ trusted the Father. He didn't revile. He didn't deceive. He didn't threaten. He said good rather than anything negative. He trusted the Father. Here's the question as we finish today. Do we trust God? How much do we trust God? Are we prepared to throw all logic, all association with the world around us and how they live? Are we prepared to throw that all away? And everything that we've seen the last couple of months in these passages, are we prepared to throw ourselves into it completely and say, 
I, as a, as a husband, as a wife, as an employee, as a person of this world, of this country, as a member of this church, I am prepared to be tender-hearted, sympathetic, humble of mind in the midst of bad treatment. I'm prepared to love and to think like Christ because I trust God. He will judge justly. He will reward those who seek him. And I want to do things his way. Let's do it, folks. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this glorious passage. I pray that um, as we go out from here now, that these words would not fall aside, that they would rattle around our heads and our hearts, sympathetic to suffer with, tender-hearted to have good feelings, brotherly love, same mind, a humble mind, the mind of Christ, that we would not revile, not deceive, not threaten, most of all, Father, that we would trust you. May we trust you. May we walk in the footsteps of Christ. May we truly be Christians. Amen.